You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this class, we're going to be finishing up our discussion of infallibility and talking about the way that Catholics need to interpret and uh, interpret accurately and rightfully respond to different kinds of magisterial teaching. First of all, we talked about infallibility in the last class, and infallibility is a charism given to the whole church in a special way exercised by the bishops teaching together with the Pope, in some instances by the Pope speaking for the whole church by himself. But what does infallibility cover? It really covers and relates to truth necessary for our salvation, truth revealed by God. It has to do with the Word of God, with revelation. That's what it has to do with. There's lots of other aspects of Christian life that are disciplinary in kind, um, that are, you know, support revelation. And in, in those kinds of areas, infallibility does not really engage or cover. Now let's talk about the word doctrine for a minute. The word doctrine means teaching in general. It covers all kinds of teaching in the church's life that relates in some way to faith and the deposit of the faith, it relates to revelation, the Word of God. Dogma is a subset of doctrine. And it's doctrine that is proposed by the church as being clearly, definitely revealed by God and therefore needs to be held by everyone. That's really what the word dogma means. And dogma is infallible, and we use a word called irreformable. Irreformable dogma. What that means is not that the formulation, the wording, the expression can't change because indeed it, it has to change. As people change and language changes, we always need to be re-expressing dogma in new terms and ways of speech and with new examples and new metaphors and all those kinds of things. But what irreformable means is that the content, the meaning of a dogma can never be changed. We can never go back on it because it comes from Christ. It comes from the gospel, from revelation, from the word of God. And therefore, it's not subject to change. It's eternal truth, even though it's expressed Always, necessarily, it's expressed in changeable human words, infallible, weak human words that are time-bound and conditioned. Nonetheless, the truth can't change, the substance of the truth. So that's what irreformable means. And dogmas may be either formally defined by an ecumenical council, by the Pope speaking on his own ex-cathedra, or it could be more informally taught taught by the universal ordinary magisterium. And I gave an example of a couple of dogmas, the existence of God and the existence of angels and, and, and demons. You know, those, are, those things have never been formally defined by an infallible act, but nonetheless they've been confessed in creeds and ordinary teaching. They've been taught universally by the bishops around the world. So, okay, so there's three ways that dogmas can be taught. They can be taught by the you know, universal Episcopal magisterium, the universal... Um, uh, ordinary Episcopal Magisterium, that's the first way, the universal extraordinary Episcopal Magisterium, which is ecumenical councils, or the extraordinary Papal Magisterium, and that would be through a, a Papal decree such as the Immaculate Conception Dogma and the Assumption Dogma. Okay, so that really is an overview of dogma, and it's also a bit of an overview too of, of uh, infallibility, okay? 
those are the three ways of exercising infallibility is something that everybody ought to know who's taking this class for credit. Uni ordinary Universal, Episcopal Magisterium, Extraordinary Episcopal, Definitions of Councils, and I'll repeat it one more time, Extraordinary Papal, okay? Ex cathedra definition. And one last thing that I'll say about papal infallibility and episcopal infallibility. There's been a belief, it really goes back to Acts uh, and the Jerusalem Council, the belief that when a council speaks, that council speaks inspired or led by the Spirit. We actually don't use the word inspiration a whole lot uh, for anything except Scripture. But nonetheless, we believe the Holy Spirit's behind the dogmatic definitions of a council, and that goes back to Acts. And so there's been a belief for a long period of time in the infallibility of conciliar statements. And that, that's never been formally defined you know, in, in a single act, but it's been clearly believed in the Catholic tradition. Papal infallibility has also been believed. Its roots go back to Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16, and it's been steadily believed since the 13th century, but different people thought it meant different things. It was, finally, it was finally defined as a dogma of faith at the First Vatican Council. Okay, let's talk about the hermeneutics, or the interpretation, of doctrinal statements of the magisterium. All the doctrinal statements, in all different forms, from the time of, of the second century all the way through to, to today, they need to be interpreted if we're going to live them. It's not just enough to say, yeah, I believe them. We need to understand them. and need to understand what they're saying and what level of authority they, they are engaging. Okay, I would encourage everybody to, to read the introduction to the collection called The Christian Faith. I showed that book in the last lecture. That book is available, and it's a wonderful collection of dogmatic and doctrinal statements for the last 2,000 years. But the introduction to the first edition was very helpful because it talked about ways different ways uh, that we need to, um, to, to employ to interpret magisterial documents. So I encourage everyone to look at that. I also encourage people to look at Mysterium Ecclesiae, that document from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, and that can be found in the Christian faith, 160 to 161 uh, paragraph numbers. So you can read an excerpt of that there. But that really helps and it outlines some of the things I'm going to say today. One of the things to understand is Scripture itself is historically conditioned. We talked about that. All the different writers from the time, you know, the, the beginning, probably the first uh, Old Testament books that we have, the Pentateuch were written maybe around 400, 500 B.C. And the, um, the New Testament writings probably were done by the 90s uh, of the first century. So you have 500 years of different authors from different time periods writing in different languages, in Hebrew, in Greek, and maybe some cases Aramaic. But they have, so the words of Scripture have a lot of diversity, and there's, there's a historical conditionness to each book of Scripture. You have to understand it in its time frame. And the magisterial documents of the Catholic Church are the same way. They're written over the course of 2,000 years with different historical circumstances, written in different time periods, in different languages. The Greek language was the first universal language of the Church. And Latin became a universal language of the church gradually from the 4th century on. So, you know, there's lots of different things that need to be taken into account to set a magisterial document in its context. One of the things to understand, too, is that no human word can exhaustively define and completely capture divine truth. All human words are limited. So every dogmatic and doctrinal statement of the Catholic Church is limited. 
there, it does not express the fullness of truth. It can't. Not because it's, you know, it's, people are falling down on the job, but just because of the limitations of human speech. And we talked about that's part why we have four Gospels. And we need four Gospels to help capture uh, the, 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 the picture of Jesus in his ministry because Jesus is divine and, and his ministry is inexhaustible, the meaning of it, the meaning of his teaching. And so, we, you know, we have uh, this limitedness is an important thing to keep in mind. Okay. One of the things we have to do to interpret doctrinal statements is pay attention to the different levels of authority. And that's what we did in the last few classes. We talked about different levels of magisterial authority. When you read a doctrinal statement, you have to ask, is this the local magisterium? Or is it universal magisterium? If it's papal universal magisterium, is it something written by one of his congregations? Is it something written by him? Is it uh, something that has the highest kind of document attached to it, an apostolic constitution, okay? Is he engaging the fullness of his authority and defining a dogma of faith? These are all different things you have to ask. Lumen Gentium 25 mentions this. Donum Veritatis mentions this in number 17 and 24. What, what is the intent? You have to ask when you're interpreting the scriptures, what is the intent of the original author? What is he trying to teach? Remember, that's the literal sense, and that's the beginning of biblical interpretation, of all those four wonderful phases of, or levels of meaning in scripture, the literal and the three phases of the spiritual sense. As you, whether you're reading in the classroom or reading in prayer, you have to start with what the author intended to, to, to teach, and that's the way it has to be with magisterial teaching. What are the officers of the church, the anointed, gifted authors, uh, um, officers, the, 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 the bishops? Okay, what are the bishops? What is the pope trying to say? What is his intent? How far is he, is he engaging his authority? To what extent? Those are questions you have to ask, and there are hints. And the hints that are provided are, number one, the kind of document it is and how it's formulated. Number two, how frequently and how strongly an idea is repeated. Number three, what is the object of the teaching? You have to ask, is this a matter of faith and doctrine? A matter of morals? Is it a matter of discipline? Very important distinction between discipline and between faith and morals. Okay? Discipline, it's important to listen to the church's teaching on discipline, but that changes. And infallibility can't cover that. Okay? It doesn't mean that people disregard it. But on the other hand, faith and morals, we're talking about something that actually comes from Christ and the apostles and Revelation. So there's a whole, you have to understand the difference between the two. You have to look at the point of affirmation. What is it that the Pope or the bishops are trying to affirm? The style can really vary a lot. When you look at the style of, of 14th century popes, it's the style of kings. It's bombastic, full with you know, a lot of pomp and circumstance. Okay, it's very different from the kind of way John Paul II would speak today. And you can't look back at the kinds of, of, of rhetoric used in the 14th century that would magnify the authority and the dignity of the Pope, and, you know, like a monarch. You can't look at that and say that's the way we always ought to talk about the Pope. That's just style. Which, that's literary format. What you've got to look at is what is the Pope affirming? What, he, what, he is, what is he trying to affirm and, stay and say? You also have to realize that people in every age have assumptions about things that are part and parcel of the age they live in. Okay? The biblical authors assumed the world was flat. Okay? They weren't affirming that a religious truth that the world was flat, but they assumed a worldview of the flatness of the world. 
And when, when Galileo discovers the roundness of the world and the fact that we revolve around the sun and, 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 and that you know, the sun doesn't revolve around us, that threatened people because they had the same assumption as the biblical authors and thought that the biblical authors' assumption was truth and was part of infallible teaching. Not so. And the same thing is true with magisterial teaching. An assumption of a particular philosophy, and philosophical framework, scientific framework, cultural framework, an assumption is not part of the affirmation of the teaching of the bishops and the pope. It was assumed for many years that war was just uh, you know, uh, the way to deal with problems. It was assumed for many years that capital punishment was the way to deal with offenders. Okay, and so you'll find many bishops and even popes assuming in, in the Middle Ages that you kill heretics. That's what you do with them because they're public offenders. You know, you go to war with those who, who, uh, who have, give you problems. Now, that's not part of the teaching of the church when you find statements uh, that reflect those kinds of assumptions. Okay, attitude. A person's attitude is not authoritative. If you have a particular bishop or father of the church or pope with an ornery attitude, you don't take the ornery attitude as normative, that all Christians ought to have an ornery attitude dealing with their opponents or with heretics. Okay, there are some uh, uh, people in the history of the church that are infamous. Paul could get a little ornery. He spoke about the Judaizers wishing that they would go all the way in, in their act of circumcising. You know, it, it was a little bit nasty there, but that's not part of infallible scripture. You have that attitude towards your, your opponents. And neither, St. Jerome was a little bit ornery, okay? That, his orneriness doesn't have anything to do with, with his, the, the teaching that he is affirming as a father of the church. So anyway, you have to keep in mind what you're looking for as authoritative is the teaching, the doctrine, and the morals that is being affirmed in a magisterial uh, statement. The other thing you have to understand is that there is doctrinal development. And when you, when you read an author in the church, an authoritative bishop or pope exercising magisterium in an early time, an early period, and that bishop or pope is in a period prior to the development of doctrine, you can't look from now back to that person and contradict the development that's happened, that's been legitimate and authorized. Okay? Um, and, and that's an important point. You just keep in mind, just like in Scripture, there is a progressive revelation in the Old Testament and there's a fullness of revelation in the New. So you can't look back to the Old Testament's approach to warfare and to punishment of enemies and retaliation and, and put that on an equal par with the Sermon on the Mount. There, now, there's no new revelation today, but there is development of doctrine. There is a deeper understanding that is acquired as time goes on in many circumstances. And that deeper understanding is often authorized by magisterial teaching. So, for example, on capital punishment. Capital punishment, there's been development in the pontificate of John Paul II in understanding capital punishment. In the early church, it became very clear. It was clear to, that the state has the authority to execute wrongdoers, wrongdoers who take the life of an innocent person. So John Paul II puts that together uh, with um, conditions in modern life and also in, in light of the Sermon on the Mount in Christ's teaching of mercy and says, well, capital punishment is something that the state has a right to do, but usually ought not to exercise because most of the time it does not have to go that far to protect society from the wrongdoer. It is possible to spare the wrongdoer's life and keep the wrongdoer from continuing to, to take another life. And whenever it can do that, in order to, to show respect to the sanctity of life, it needs to do that. 
So that's a, you can't now look for, at this point in time after that development to look backwards and, and dissent from John Paul II by looking at somebody writing in the Middle Ages where everybody, every Christian um, authority was very quickly and freely putting to death offenders, not just murderers, but heretics and many others as well, political prisoners. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very important to keep in mind the development of doctrine as you interpret past historical statements from the magisterium. You have to interpret a statement, a particular statement, in light of the whole tradition. Just like you have to interpret one particular scripture in light of all of scripture. Okay, so there are just some ground rules for the hermeneutics of doctrinal statements. And what I would like to do is, is share a little bit about theologians right now. Theologians have existed in the church from the beginning. Theologians who don't exercise the Episcopal magisterium. Some of the greatest teachers in the early church, even in the second century, were lay people. Justin Martyr. Magnificent teacher, never ordained. He's a father of the church. His writings express the tradition. And later on, we have a man like Origen and Tertullian. Tertullian may have become a priest. Origen became a, a priest eventually, but began his career as a layman and was world-renowned as a teacher of the Catholic faith as a layperson. Okay, so theologians, whether they be lay or ordained, who are not bishops. Jerome was not a bishop, but he's a father of the church. He's a priest. But so non-bishops who are not exercising the, the, the uh, Episcopal magisterium, but who rather are great thinkers and teachers who express the tradition. These people, theologians, um, have a great important contribution to make. And sometimes in the modern world, in the last 20, 30 years, there, there's been an antagonism between the bishops and theologians. The bishops and the Pope on the one hand, theologians on the other. And some Catholics uh, have uh, taken sides and, and said, you know, I, I like the theologians and listen to them. Or no, I like the, the bishop and the pope and the bishops and I'm going to reject what theologians say. They have nothing to say of value. Well, the pope doesn't look at it that way and we shouldn't look at it that way. There are two different charisms that are given it's, uh, to, to, the, to teachers in the church. Do you remember way back in the Middle Ages, the theologians at universities, their teaching office was called a magisterium. Well, today we don't call the teaching office of theologians magisterium because that muddies the waters, but they do have a teaching office in the church that's important and, but distinct and subordinate to the Episcopal teaching office. Where do we find the magisterium teaching us about this? Well, we find it in Donum Veritatis, that document I mentioned earlier. It's a document of the Pope's cabinet, uh, his congregation for the doctrine of the faith, his committee on doctrine, so to speak. That document is called the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. And it was meant to deal with this problem and clarify some things. Teaching theology is a charism. A, a theologian has been given a charism for the good of the church by the Holy Spirit. This is the first place we see this in writing, but certainly as we look over the history of Christianity, it's been the case. Okay, it's an official role in the church to be a theologian. If you teach theology at a Catholic campus, a Catholic college, you have an ecclesiastical office. That's the way the church understands it. In fact, there's an obligation for a theologian to take an oath of loyalty and make a profession of faith. Uh, that's not being implemented in the United States in many Catholic colleges, but nonetheless, it is something that's supposed to be done. And it's mentioned in the document I just mentioned, paragraph 22. What do theologians do? What's their function? Well, they have two functions with regard to doctrine, okay? 
they help the bishops to formulate doctrine. The bishops, again, keep in mind their role is a conservative role to guard and protect and judge the faith. But there needs to be a creative role to help the development of doctrine come forward. And that creative role is the role of theologians. Before the Second Vatican Council, there was tremendous work done by theologians, magnificent work by historical theologians, doctrinal theologians, liturgists, canon lawyers. Uh, there was a great explosion of Catholic scholarship that happened after the turn of the century. And that scholarship helped make Vatican II as a council possible. And at the council, the bishops there had expert advisors, many of whom were not bishops, they were priests, and some, in some cases laymen. And those advisors actually helped to write the council documents. They helped the bishops to formulate their opinions. So it's very important that theologians do creative work and groundbreaking work when it comes to theology and helping with the development of doctrine. Okay, but also, once doctrinal statements are made and taught by the church, who helps the lady to understand them? Who helps people to interpret them? In many cases, it's theologians. That's what I'm doing right here in this course. I'm a lay theologian, and I'm helping people to understand, who are taking the course, the teaching of the Catholic Church. I'm helping to clarify it and explain it. So that's the twofold role of the theologian, to help the magisterium formulate official teaching, and on the other hand, to help the faithful understand the teaching of the magisterium. So it's an important role of, there's an important collaborative relationship, a complementary relationship between the bishops and their magisterium and the scholars and their teaching office. All right, now it's very clear who has the final say, who has the, the authority to speak in the name of Christ. Well, it's, there's no doubt. It is the Episcopal teaching office, the magisterium, uh, with the Pope leading that has the official uh, role, okay? But the theologians have a creative and interpretive role that's important nonetheless. Okay, one of the things that the theologians do on the, on the, on the creative side is culture is constantly challenging faith and providing new ways of understanding of faith. And culture is not always bad. The cultural changes that are happening oftentimes can uh, attack the faith, like the, the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s in, in the Western world. That's a, you know, a bad thing. But on the other hand, there are some things that, have, uh, the, that are cultural developments that are very good. Okay? Uh, for example, the, the, there's a development, obviously, focusing on the dignity of woman that is a good thing. Mixed into the feminist movement, there can be many bad things uh, that are uh, contrary to uh, authority uh, or, or any kind of male authority or contrary to males, period. It can be, you know, uh, some uh, men in the past can be accused of hating women, being misogynist. Well, some women feminists have gone over the brink and, and hate men. So, I mean, there's some elements in the feminist movement that are bad. There are some elements that are good. There needs to be a critical assimilation of things happening out there in culture. Uh, assimilation of that which is good that helps support the faith and uh, discrimination of what's not so good. And, what, and part of that work is work of theologians to make that critical assimilation from contemporary culture that leads to doctrinal progress, doctrinal development. Thomas Aquinas did this in the 13th century. There was a new philosophy in the Western world, the philosophy of Aristotle. Many conservatives saw it as a tremendous threat. There were some avant-garde people that took it lock, stock, and barrel and actually so, took it so, so much to heart that they denied certain aspects of Catholic faith. And Thomas, a very holy man, very gifted and brilliant man, was able to make a critical assimilation to assimilate elements of the, of the Aristotelian heritage into Catholic theology 
in a way that helped provide new clarity, new ways to express the mystery. So he's an example of, uh, of the, what a theologian does. We, we find the same thing in the past with someone like Augustine, who took another philosophy, Neoplatonism, and used dimensions of that to explain the faith. Okay, so in every age, God raises up scholars who have a gift of doing this, and it's an important gift. All right, it's an abuse when, when you have scholars who, who muddy the waters of the faith with currents from contemporary life that aren't helpful, that are antagonistic to the faith. But, but the point that I'm making here is that that, that is an abuse of, or a, it's bad theology. Good theology, we need not be afraid of, and the church is certainly not afraid of it, is very grateful for it. Okay, let's talk about responses to different levels of magisterial teaching. Okay, number one, there's infallible dogma. There's dogma that's been proposed by the universal ordinary magisterial or by extraordinary acts and definitions of councils and popes. What is our response to that? Well, first of all, I just want to point out that these, I'm going to talk about four different kinds of responses, and these four responses are laid out in that document, Donum Veritatis, on the ecclesial vocation of the theologian. And this document is a, a very important document, I think, because it helps uh, clarify things, and it's also an instance of the development of doctrine. I'll show you that in a minute. Okay, so the very first thing, infallible dogma. Okay, the second thing, a definitive statement on a matter closely connected with revealed truth. The third thing, ordinary teaching on faith and morals. And then uh, the, the fourth thing, ordinary prudential teaching on disciplinary matters. Disciplinary matters means things not having to do with faith and morals, having to do with laws, rules, lifestyles, uh, liturgical customs, and things like that. Okay, So there are different responses that are due by us to different levels of magisterial teaching. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to break, and in the next class I'm going to explain more clearly what these four different responses are, and I'm going to talk about dissent, if dissent is possible. And then finally we're going to illustrate, we're going to sum up the course by illustrating the relationship between magisterium, scripture, and tradition through a couple of test cases. And we're going to just examine the way in which those test cases uh, illustrate you know, all that we've talked about in this course. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.